telling your own story and being given the agency to tell your own story and being given the respect and support to tell your own story can actually be a healing experience for people. And it certainly felt like that for me. Danse, hello, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm super excited to have Connie Walker here with me today. She's an award-winning Cree investigative journalist and a member of the Okanese First Nation in Saskatchewan, and she worked at the CBC for a number of years, culminating with her work on the podcast Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, before leaving to a work on her new show called Stolen. The recent season of Stolen Surviving St. Michael's explores her own Cree family story and intergenerational trauma from Canadian residential schools, and it has received a ton of awards and numerous nominations. And I'm so excited to dig more into your history and get to know more about your story. Connie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Yeah, like we had mentioned, I'm inspired by a little bit more of like your backstory and how you got into journalism. But I do want to hear from you. Like, we know your work now and we know all the awards that you're nominated for. But where did this really begin? Like, what made you get into journalism? The first time I thought about becoming a journalist was back in high school. Like, I grew up on my reserve, Okanese. Well, actually, I'm kind of from File Hills. Like, I'm a member of Okanese, but I my grandpa's from Little Black Bear. File Hills is like a community of four reserves. But I went to school in the nearby town of Balcaris. And I was in high school when Pamela George was killed. Pamela George was from the Sacramento First Nation. And I remember it because I wasn't somebody who was like that interested in news or current affairs or journalism at that point. But I do remember like the media coverage of her death and of the trial of the two men who were charged and the way that the media talked about Pamela and how how much I felt like they focused on the two white men who were charged in her death and the way that they were described. Like there's one news story that I always go back to where you know, they say their names and they say one is a, a basketball star and the other is like a hockey standout and they come from middle-class families and they were university students. And they say the victim was Aboriginal and a prostitute. Like they don't even say her name in that sentence. And and, and they, they do say her name after that. But the fact that she's reduced to that, I don't think I had the words to understand how it made me feel or how I felt, but it felt like it was not just about Pamela. It was about all First Nations women and girls in the province of Saskatchewan. And I remember at that time wondering about like, who gets to write these stories? Like, who are there any Native people in the newsrooms who are covering this trial? And and I wrote like an editorial or something for our school newsletter. And that was kind of the first time I thought about becoming a journalist. But I, when I went to university a couple years later, I actually... I didn't even apply to the journalism school. I thought I didn't think I could get in. For some reason, I felt like that just wasn't a space for me. And it wasn't until a couple years into my undergrad that I got connected with the Indigenous Communication Arts Program that was at um, the First Nations University of Canada. Back then, it was called SIFC. And that's how I kind of got into journalism and communications. For me, it's almost like I feel like we're still talked about in the same sense in a lot of those regards when it comes to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the two-spirit crisis that's affecting us across Turtle Island. I feel like oftentimes the names aren't even published or we are still left to 
the sidelines and we're not, we're completely disposed. And so I'm wondering, have you seen a shift happening in regards to these stories, in regards to amplifying the lives of these women? Absolutely. I feel like, especially in the last like five to 10 years, I feel like there's been a huge shift, like a transformative shift in terms of not just the the number of stories about um, our communities, but the kinds of stories. You know, I think that more and more Indigenous people are being supported to tell our stories. And that makes all the difference in terms of being able to like, not just understand like how important the context is in our lived experiences as Indigenous people are and how important our history is, but also just just how important it is that we're the ones who can like have the ability to create space for empathy for Indigenous people. And that might sound simple, but when you think about like exactly what you're talking about, the way that we've been portrayed in media, the way that people are reduced to stereotypes, like you really need to be able to counter those in a meaningful way. And and I really feel like Indigenous people, because of our lived experience, because we innately understand these issues and how they're interconnected, are in the best position. I, I feel like there has been a shift in the last five to 10 years that we have been getting more support. I still think like we're absolutely <laughs> underrepresented in media and there's so much more work to be done. But I am grateful that, you know, I was I was at CBC for 20 years and a journalist for 20 years where I wasn't supported to do that kind of work for, for most of my career. And now I'm in a position where, you know, I have a show that's dedicated to talking about Indigenous issues in a serialized investigative podcast. And that is like, I feel so grateful to be able to do that. Well, that was going to actually be my next question, because for me, even just within the health and wellness industry, oftentimes I'm still the only Indigenous woman within these rooms or within these meetings. And for you, having worked within an industry for 20 years and be advocating for still the same things, what makes you not lose hope? Like what makes you keep going each and every day and holding empathy and holding that interconnectedness to these stories? Like what are maybe some personal uh, rituals or things that you do in your life to make sure that you still have that power and you still have that clarity and that empathy? I mean, I think for me, so much of my strength and commitment comes from my family and my community and the fact that I don't live on Okanese anymore. I've lived in Toronto now for over 20 years, but that's still very much home. And like my my home is my family and my home is my community. And I'm still so connected with them. And I feel like that's like a huge source of inspiration for me, but also of strength. You know, I I rely a lot on my family. And now being in my 40s, I understand in a different way, just the teachings that I have gotten from my mother and my aunties and my grandmother and my grandparents and and, and now my, my dad and my uncles, like just the things that were innately taught to us in our communities and our families are the things that have been a constant throughout my life and throughout my career that I still rely so much on today. That is having that interconnected family structure that is like prioritizing love of family, but also responsibility to family and to community. And those are things that I feel like are are my biggest motivators. So there's obviously like, you know, in every space we'll be underrepresented, we'll be not always supported. And I just think that's part of what this is. Like we have to deal with all that 
crap, mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. in order to get to do what it is we're here to do and what we want to do and and share and push for space for our voices and our stories to be heard. Yeah. And I think that's something that you have really done throughout your work is obviously listening to the stories of uh, several Indigenous people and the harms that have been committed against us. What has that been like for you being a witness and being a space holder when you are uncovering stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people? Like how, how has that been for you? So now I, I've had the experience of obviously like reporting a lot on on other people's families. And, you know, especially when you're thinking about the crisis of violence um, in our communities, you know, and the work that I've done about MMIW and the 60 Scoop. And and I now with the last season of the podcast, like turned that inward and, and also reported on my own family and my own family's experience. I feel like for other families, like I feel, again, a huge responsibility, right? Like, because it's such a big ask to interview somebody, to ask them about their lives and their loss, you know, because we're often talking to them about a loved one who who's either gone missing or who's who's been a victim of violence. And those are really difficult, painful conversations for them sometimes. And I always want to be centering them in in those conversations and in those experiences and be concerned about their well-being. I feel like when I first started doing that reporting, I was really concerned about bringing up that trauma and also not being able to offer support, really. Like, you know, I'm not a psychotherapist. I can't promise to take care of, of somebody, but I do have responsibilities as a as a journalist. What has helped me feel more comfortable in those spaces is, is the work that I've done learning about what it means to be trauma-informed and in our approaches to journalism. And so just trying to convey to people the agency that they have in telling their own stories and giving them respect and space to share what they're comfortable sharing and not more than that, like not pushing for details of or descriptions of, of things if they're not comfortable talking about things. And then trying to leave people in a good place at the end of the conversation, trying to bring things back to the present and how are you doing now and how are you feeling and what do you have planned this weekend? What's going on, you know, next week? And then checking in with people. And then with my family and reporting on on the last season of the podcast, that obviously felt amplified because I also have personal relationships and this is like my auntie I'm talking to or my uncle and like that's the number one priority is like our relationship and our family and our and wanting to make sure that that they were feeling okay with everything throughout the entire process. Yeah. So what was that process like for you? Uh, Where did the, like, obviously, what is the story that this podcast was birthed out of? And where, how is that connected to you? And how do you feel now that you've had, you know, a big part of your family's life now put out into, into the collective? Like, how is that feeling for you now? But where did it start? Where did it first come from? Well, it started on Facebook. <laughs> um, I was just like scrolling through Facebook one day and I came across a post that my brother Hal had written. And it was after a couple of weeks after the discovery was made in Kamloops of of the unmarked graves of, of kids from the residential school there. 
And that was such, I don't know how you remember that time, but that was such a difficult time, I think, for so many people. Yeah, it was challenging. You you think you would have like healed, quote unquote, healed a lot. And then all of a sudden it just gets rebirthed and re-triggered within you. So yeah, that was really challenging for me too. The the thing that I found lots of things about it were really were really challenging. Obviously, it's just so devastating to think of, of, of the kids who who died at residential schools who weren't allowed to come home, knowing this was one school, but that there were over a hundred across the country that were in operation for over a hundred years. The thing that was surprisingly upsetting for me is how I reacted to the reaction. Like, mm. because it really felt like it was the first time that so many Canadians stopped and, and cared. And it was like, this is huge news. Like, Everybody in my neighborhood in Toronto, like it felt like everyone put an orange shirt out on their porch and everybody stopped and they, there was this like collective shock that, that happened, I think, across the country and internationally even. And I remember feeling angry about it. I was, I was like so mad because I was, I was like, sure, it's great that people are paying attention now, but this is not new information. Like the survivors have been telling these stories for decades now. This was in the TRC report that everybody ignored and didn't pay attention to. And I remember feeling like mad about it. I was like angry. I was so frustrated. And so it was, I guess, in that headspace that I read this post from my brother Hal, and it was a story about our dad. And I think he wrote it kind of because of of what was happening after Kamloops, because it seemed like so many people were coming forward with their stories about surviving residential schools or, or being an inter- intergenerational survivor of residential schools. And he shared this story about our dad. And our dad worked as a police officer in the RCMP in the late 1970s. And he said that our dad had told him this story about one night when he was out on patrol, he saw a vehicle swerving on the road and he pulled it over because he thought the driver was drinking. And when he got to the driver's side window, he realized that he knew the driver and that it was a priest who had abused him when he was a boy at residential school. And that my dad beat the shit out of the priest that night on the side of the road and then expected there to be like a complaint made or for him to get in trouble, but nothing ever happened. And then it just became a story that he told, like he shared with my brother years later. And when I read it, like I can still remember like just the feeling I had of, you know, just feeling terrible because I didn't, I didn't know that my dad had been abused at residential school. I'd never thought about it, honestly. Like, I I guess maybe I could have known or I should have known, but I didn't know anything about his experience. Like, I didn't know where he went and I didn't know for how long. It was like all of these, like, realizations that were happening, like, in a rapid succession. I was like, my dad was abused at a residential school by a priest. And so in just my mind, it was like, must have been sexual abuse. And that then thinking of the father he was to me when I was a kid, because he was quite like so many survivors, like dealing with the trauma that he had lived through as a child and struggling. And he drank a lot when I was a kid and he was really abusive. And then it felt like that was helping me make sense of some of that behavior. And then it was also this regret because my father passed away 10 years ago and that I never got to learn this about him when he was alive. And I had felt like I had missed this opportunity to know him. That was the beginning of what eventually became the the podcast. 
that we made, mm. Stolen Surviving St. Michael's, which was basically my attempt to try to, you know, get to know my dad and reconcile with him by understanding more about what he went through and to see if I could try to find the priest that he pulled over that night. Mm. Honestly, I'm getting chills just listening to you share your story because it does bring up a lot of my own story. I mean, my dad went to residential school as well, and I didn't get to hear anything that he also went through. And to have that piece of information, I can imagine how you started just it makes so much more sense as to like why maybe our parents behaved a certain way because of what they had went through and the harms that they went through through residential school. And so I can't imagine not only the trauma that it brought up, but also the healing that it probably brought up for you and your family. And I can't imagine just having the opportunity to witness and to hear those stories from your other family members. And so what was their, what was their relationship like to being on the podcast? Um, I was obviously really like, anxious and hesitant to like ask my family about their experiences in residential school and ask if they knew about my dad's experience. But I was also like then so surprised almost when everyone was so open and they wanted to share so much with me. I'm also that person. I feel like even though I'm a journalist, I've been doing this for so long. I am always like kind of surprised when people say, yeah, I'll talk to you and I'll tell you. And like, Anyway, I felt like that with my family as well. And then it was my uncle George. Like I, I sat with him for an interview. It was over two hours and it was about his experience in residential school and about my dad's experience in residential school. But it was also about what happened after that, you know, and he was like open and honest and just really candid about my dad and and how he was, but then also how he changed. And it was like how he kept going and how he eventually like quit drinking and started healing from some of that trauma that he went through at residential school and how he turned to kind of reclaim the culture and language that they tried to take from him in school you know, he had his own sweat lodge and and then he became this like cultural leader in the community. And it was like, he helped me see the beauty in my dad's life and understand him in a way that was just so incredible. And at the end of it, he gave me an eagle feather that my dad had given him. And it was just the most beautiful thing. And I'm getting like choked up just thinking about it because um, my uncle George passed away not long after that interview. But I'm just kind of, in awe of his generosity, you know, like they, that he was doing that because he really wanted me to know my dad. And that that's what, when I think about like the generosity of all my family members who did that, you know, because, because they knew my dad, they knew him when he was a kid. They knew him when he was, you know, the father to me as a young child, but then they knew his life after and they Mm. wanted to help me know him in the way that they did. And I'm just so grateful to them for that. I can imagine, yeah, like how transformative that would be for you too, because I think when we are younger, maybe all we can see is the traumas of our parents and to see them in another light, like that's how we should be seeing one another is like, even though there's so much darkness and it really wasn't any of our faults and to see still some light that existed within that darkness that he had, I think that's beautiful. And I think that just shows the power of storytelling. And that shows the power that comes from sharing our stories. And the fact that so many people are so open to sharing their stories with you, it just shows that it's like, oh, wow, this is how 
it feels to hold space and to see another person for the humanity within them. And so I want to know like how, why do you think storytelling is so important when it comes to our culture, when it comes to our stories as Indigenous people? Storytelling has just always been such a huge part, I think, of our cultures. When it comes to, like, especially reporting on difficult stories, like the stories that I report on in our podcast, Stolen, we're often talking about terrible trauma and loss and and really, like, unpacking this attempted genocide of Indigenous people and the ongoing impacts that families and communities are still grappling with. And that people have been reporting on Indigenous people for a long time, like, you know, for for decades. And a lot of that reporting has been harmful, like thinking about Pamela George, thinking about MMIW, thinking about residential schools, especially like in the 90s and and early 2000s when those stories started coming out. And I think that what what I have learned through the podcasts, like starting with like Missing and Murdered, that the podcast that I did with CBC, but I feel like Stolen Surviving St. Michael's is another example of it, is actually like how telling your own story and being given the agency to tell your own story and being given the respect and support to tell your own story can actually be a healing experience for people. And it certainly felt like that for me uh, in terms of not just an opportunity to get to know my dad and to understand him through interviews with, with my relatives, but to turn it into a story that not only was for listeners, but was for myself in terms of helping me process and connect the dots in my own life and and understand how I'm connected to this history and how I've been impacted by this story. People maybe don't understand, like, they say like, oh, but what was it like to like reveal so much in a podcast? Like, that's not something that bothers me or that I think about. I feel like for me, it's just feels like this is something that my family and uh, it was just a huge opportunity because this is something that we're all living with. We have always been living with this. And this was like a chance to actually like expose it and to talk about it and to create space to talk about it and to then understand it and process it and heal from it. The the sharing part of that is actually also really important to me. I'm I'm Mm. like, I want to like create connections with people. You know, I heard from so many people in my family, but also so many people just, you know, other First Nations people who say, I felt like you were talking about me and my dad. I felt like, you know, I had this experience with my mother or that reminded me of this. And this started out as a story about me and my dad. But in so many ways, this became all of our story and we all have this shared experience and we all, you know, hopefully can see the healing power in talking about it. Mm. And I think it does come back to that interconnectedness that you were talking about in the beginning of, you know, we're not just a statistic that we are, there's humans behind those numbers. There's humanity behind that. And I think if I am reading or I'm listening to your podcast, I do see myself in that girl. I do see myself in that indigenous woman. I do see that as a sister or a mother. And I think that's what we need to bring back to storytelling is that humanity aspect and even to podcasting and to social media itself. I think sometimes we can feel disconnected from the humanity that's happening behind the screen or behind the podcast or behind the lens. And for you, I know you're a big inspiration for a lot of indigenous creatives and the younger 
younger generation out there. So what would your advice be for the younger generation of Indigenous journalists that are wanting to share their stories and to have a platform like or to work with CBC even um, to have their stories shared? What would your advice be for the younger generation? I feel like, honestly, I'm so inspired by the younger generation. I feel like... (laughs) Same. I I take so much inspiration from them in just that, like, you know, I feel like I came up in a time where it was like, this is what is normal and this is what is commonplace. And it took me even a long time to, like, even name things. I was like, oh, that's racism. That's, you know, know, I'm like, oh, that that just is existing everywhere, especially in Saskatchewan. Like, honestly, I remember moving to Toronto when I was in my early 20s and it was a realization that I lived here that people didn't care that I was Native. I was like, they don't even care. They don't even, they don't even recognize me as being Native. Like, and in Saskatchewan, I didn't, until I left and then went back, I could see how it was like, you walk into a store, you like any place you go, it's like, it's something that is like with you always. And I didn't even, you just kind of grow up in, in the water and you don't even realize it's boiling and you're in it. And I feel like younger, the younger generation is like just so strong in terms of calling that out all the time, everywhere. And, and that really, I feel like is so inspiring to me. I think that for a long time, because I was in those spaces where, you know, you're the only Indigenous journalist. And I heard directly from people like, this isn't another poor Indian story. Is it like, you know, just this idea or feeling that our stories didn't matter, that people didn't care. Now to finally be at a point where that's absolutely wrong. And here's all the proof. Like, you know, (laughs) here's all the proof of why that's not the case. And, And so I'm just so encouraged by the world that the younger people are creating and and what things they're just completely setting aside and and changing as they go. And that's, I feel like a huge inspiration for me. Yeah, no, I'm constantly inspired. And I honestly learn a lot from the younger generation. They even like call me out or call me in and I'm like, thank you because I didn't know this piece of information or I didn't realize this was happening in the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm honestly super inspired. And I do feel like Now is a time where a lot of non-Indigenous people are wanting to support more of our stories and to support more of our projects. And so that gives me inspiration. But I also recognize that there is still a lot of, like you had mentioned earlier, like racist or stereotypical reporting that's still being done against our people. And so do you see like non-Indigenous people now kind of shifting the way that they're talking about us? Or do you think that they still have a lot in terms of learning how they they share or they write about us? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of it has to do with just representation, right, in newsrooms. Like, it's, it's an ongoing huge problem that there aren't enough Indigenous people in those spaces. Because, I, you know, I think for a while I thought, you know, because I was like, there, there just aren't enough Indigenous journalists that non-Indigenous people also obviously have to take on these stories. But now I feel like, no, hire Indigenous people and train them and support them. And we should be the ones taking on these stories. And I think that, like, obviously, there's so such a long way to go in Canada, but also even in the United States, like, especially in the United States, it feels like uh, because Canada's smaller, we've been able to, like, make progress quicker or something or, or like, the changes just happened. But in the U.S., just thinking about, like, representation at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, at NPR, like all of these major news organizations, 
have very few, if any, Indigenous journalists. And, and that is really, like, shameful in 2023, frankly. Yeah, honestly, that's what keeps me in Canada is because I recognize we do have a long way to go. But in terms of like the framework and like we do have the 94 calls to action by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and we do have these calls to action within every industry. So I do see that kind of more within Canada than the states. I feel like the states has a long way to go go in terms of healing their relationships with Indigenous people and just representing Indigenous people as a whole. And so when you think of this idea of Indigenous futurism and imagining a new future future for Indigenous people, like how would you want to see that represented within journalism itself? What do you want to see? I, I mean, that's such a hard question. I, I guess like my dream would be that that Indigenous people are like supported to tell our own stories. And I feel like I've been part of like various efforts over the years to like recruit more Indigenous people. And I believe like institutions and news organizations want to do a better job, but it's also a really difficult thing because you can bring people in, but then you also have to uh, support them in and understand that the spaces in which they're coming into have not been set up for their success sometimes. And like understanding that we have different experiences and it's not, I, I think like, Having some kind of meaningful inclusion, which requires not just recruitment, but retention and support in, in meaningful ways, feels like a, a dream for me. Uh, what what needs to happen? Like, it's not it shouldn't be a dream. It should just be something that everybody recognizes as a priority. But I think the other thing that that I would like to see is like, obviously, my podcast is so focused on investigative and history and like really trying to like connect the dots for people, fill in the blanks that about Indigenous people and culture and life and history that we did not learn in school. And so much of it is focused on these investigative elements. So they're often really hard, difficult stories. But I just love shows like Reservation Dogs, which are showing like the full humanity that we have, because like there's so much diversity in our experiences there should be room for like indigenous laughter and indigenous i mean what's happening in terms of like the space for indigenous fashion right now is so exciting and yeah like there's so all of this stuff that is happening that is like showing the full range of our experiences is so beautiful and necessary and and that's something that i feel like should should be incorporated and reflected in media as well yeah and I think well we're so much more than our trauma and we're actually really funny people I like I laugh so much at all of our content and just like our anti-jokes and everything and so I think people sometimes yeah just put us into this box and think that's what we exist in but we're so much more than just that and also just where we come from I think that we have so much to learn from each other as well recognizing that we're not all the same we're not monolithic we all come from different nations and different languages and I think I think now we're in a really good inspiring time where we can hear other people's stories and other people's voices. And you did bring up your mom earlier on this call. And so you are inspired by your mom and your family's teachings. And so I'm curious to know, like, how you would define the word matriarchy and who are matriarchs that you are currently inspired by? I mean, like every woman in my family, like every single woman in my family, <laughs> including my mom, is just like, you know, um, my last name is Walker. I'm Connie Walker. And, and it's because my mom's last name is Walker. And her 
mom's last name was Walker. Like our the matriarchs in our family have been so strong in bucking against any kind of patriarchy and and conforming to like societal rules for so many years. Like my grandma, she wanted all her kids to have her name. Like they should have my name. And so they all did. And all of her daughter's kids have the name Walker. And, you know, it's, I, so I feel like I just have such a strong, long line of matriarchs in my family who have shown and taught me everything in terms of like how to love your family, how to support your family, how to, because they've all struggled. They've all had experiences of like incredible struggle and they have all still instilled in all of us the importance of like family and community and sticking together and standing up for each other and doing what you need to do to take care of each other. And those are things that, like I said, like now that I'm looking back, I'm like really can look at my grandmother, for example, who was sent to a residential school. She was from Okanese, but sent to a residential school in Manitoba and ran away from residential school with her friend and made it back home and then never went back to school, but still like taught her kids and taught her grandkids like nobody's better than you. Like I remember one of my favorite stories about my grandma is that if you're a native person and you, and you live on a reserve and you go into a small town, when I was a kid, we would go to eat at this restaurant and she's, and white people would sometimes stare at us. They would like, look at us. And my grandma would look at them and say, boo. Like, <laughs> like she was like, not going to back down or be intimidated by anybody. And I just feel like the strength that would take at that point in your, like, you know, in the, in the seventies and eighties in rural Saskatchewan, I have so many examples of that <laughs> in my family of like the the way that women have stood up and and the strength that they give and that they continue to to give to to me is just incredible. I'm so grateful. I'm like I'm going to use that one. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Connie, for sharing a bit of your story. I do want to know how to support you for 2023. What are the projects that you're currently up to and how can how can my followers support all the work that you're creating in the world? So I'm working on another season of Stolen. I mean, I, I, I just really am so grateful to get to continue to be supported to do this work because I feel like there are so many stories in so many communities that deserve to be told. And I really feel like podcasting is such a great medium for telling stories from our communities because you have the space to get into a single story, a deep dive, but really reveal like facets of Indigenous life and and create space for empathy and to counter all these negative stereotypes. So yeah, I'm just so grateful to get to continue to do this work. So that's what I'm going to be focused on for 2023. Thank you, hi, hi, for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, check your podcast app now to make sure you're subscribed. I'm Shayla Olette Stonechild. You can find me along with more info on Matriarch Movement on Instagram at Shayla0H. And my podcast producer is Katie Lore, and I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>